Well, good morning and welcome to Daylight Savings Time, where you go to bed on Texas time and wake up in New York time. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but it always takes me a few weeks to kind of get it back together once we make the shift here. And on top of all that, you have a guest speaker. So what a great Sunday, huh? So a few years ago, we're traveling in the Northeast on vacation and passing through Connecticut on our way to the coast in Massachusetts. Um, we stopped to get a Coke in a little town called Enfield. I go, Enfield, Enfield, I've heard of this place. What happened here? Something significant happened in Enfield, Connecticut. And then it, then it, then it finally came to me. Anybody know? That's where Jonathan Edwards gave his very famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in the middle of the Great Awakening, a very pivotal time in America's uh, spiritual history. I said, well, I've got to find the spot. I've got to find where this happened. So I asked around in town, and, and sure enough, found on the south side of town a historical marker next to an old church. That wasn't the original church. It had been burned down and rebuilt, but it was old. <laughs> and a historical marker that said right here on the spot is where Jonathan Edwards gave his Sinners in the hands of an angry God. I thought, wow, this is really awesome. But the point of my story is that we were on our way to the coast of Massachusetts now, uh, because I wanted to see where the pilgrims landed. Uh, now, we've been to Jamestown several times because I have an ancestor that came to Jamestown very early. But my wife, Janet, has an ancestor that came on the Mayflower to where? Where did the pilgrims land? Who knows? Anybody? Plymouth Rock. That's right. I wanted to go stand on the rock. I wanted to see the spot where in 1620 the first pilgrims came and landed in America. Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to find the grave of William Bradford, who was the governor. And it was a very, they were a very godly group of folks trying to, you know, to, to live the Christian life in a, in a far-off land. <clears throat> and so I want to find the actual rock. And so is, uh, and I want to see where they disembarked. And, and this is a pretty famous uh, spot in American history. So um, as it turns out, there is a memorial there. And uh, uh, it's very nice. looks like a Greek temple that over the actual rock, so to speak. You think, wow, this is going to be pretty impressive. I can't wait to go and see this. And so you come down from the top, down the hill, and you go into this little mausoleum, and, and, and then there it is. You think, wait, that's it? <laughs> that's Plymouth Rock? Well, well sure enough, that, that's it, supposedly. So, um, and, then, and then the next picture... Um, Wow, you know it's the Plymouth Rock because it's got the stamp on it, 1620. That must be it, right? And, and take a closer look. You'll see that crack there. Well, about the time of the Revolutionary War, I guess they were afraid the British were going to steal it. So they ripped it up off the ground and took it up the hill for a while and, and broke it and had to glue it back together. <laughs> and some years later, in the mid-19th century, they brought it back and put it uh, supposedly on top of, of where its foundation, where it had been. And it's been there ever since the mid-1800s. Now, the problem is... Uh, there's no contemporary history mentioning any rock, any rock that the pilgrims landed on. It just says they landed, you know. And, and, and most of the shore there is a soft, sandy beach. So is it genuine or not? Is it, is it the real thing? Well, the only history you have of Plymouth Rock is one guy, age 95, 120 years after uh, they landed. So in about 1740, 41... Uh, he says, well, this is it. This is the rock because my dad, who was a pilgrim, brought me here as a kid. I played on this rock, and this is it. 120 years later, one guy says, this is the rock. Well, it may be. It may be. Uh, genuine or not. Is it genuine? Ah, it's hard to say. It might be. Um, let me shift gears. You ever heard the name John Stott? John Stott was a famous uh, <clears throat> British uh, Christian, theologian, pastor, 
uh, evangelical leader for very many years. If you've been involved in IV through the years, you've heard his name. Uh, he traveled around the world and spoke often at conferences. Uh, and, and in his latter years, just passed away a couple of years ago, wrote a number of great books. And by the way, The Cross of Christ, if you're, if, you, if you're looking for a great book to read, is his magnum opus. It's one of the best books I've ever read. Um, on, on, it covers a whole lot of topics related to Christ and his cross and the meaning and the implications, etc. Um, anyway, in the late 90s, as he was traveling uh, extensively, he was asked regularly, how would you describe the state of the modern church? How would you describe it? And his answer was always the same, a short little phrase, growth without depth. Growth without depth. In other words, numerical growth without corresponding discipleship. Now, Jesus said in John 15, 8, by this, uh, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You show that you are a disciple by the fruit that is born in your life. I just quoted the ESV. Here's the NASB version of the, of the same of the same verse. And, and down in verse 16, he says, and this wasn't your idea. You didn't choose me. I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And the NIV will say lasting fruit. Fruit that lasts. Wow. Well, um, we, we, if we looked a few verses back, uh, starting at verse 4, he tells us how that happens. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. Uh, but without me... You can't do anything. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So uh, the fruit uh, is utterly and totally contingent on whether you abide in the vine, whether you abide in Jesus. Well, that begs the question, what exactly is the fruit? What is he talking about? What is fruit? Now, he's using a metaphor, isn't he? Um, he's using a metaphor to describe a spiritual reality in the lives of people, isn't he? What is fruit? That is so important. By this, God is glorified by the fruit that is born in our lives. Genuine, real, and lasting fruit is what God's looking for. And it comes from staying connected to Jesus. But what is the fruit that he's looking for? Let me use a very simple visual aid here. M&M's. Uh, not the candy. <laughs> the initials. <laughs> initials. M&M. Maturity and multiplication. Let me suggest that fruit fundamentally can be described as... Maturity and multiplication. You might say it like this, Christ-likeness or character in your life and spiritual children, offspring, people you are passing it on to, investing in. Okay? Maturity and multiplication. Let me illustrate from a couple of key um, mission statements by the Apostle Paul. Let's talk about Paul for a minute. I think we could agree that after, after Jesus, Paul is the single most influential person in the history of the Christian church, right? Agreed? And so let's, let's think for a minute. What, what are all the things that, that Paul did during his lifetime? Well, he, he traveled all over the civilized world. He, he, he led a lot of people to Christ. Uh, he discipled people. He raised up a lot of leaders. He planted churches. He wrote much of the New Testament, right? But here's a guy that never loses sight of the forest for the trees, does he? He is so focused, and I think in two sentences there in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, he says very clearly what he's all about. We proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete, mature 
in Christ. And for this purpose, toward this goal, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Here's a guy that didn't get lost in the forest for the trees. He stayed focused. We spotlight Jesus. We're about Jesus. But what we're doing is everyone we're ministering to, we want to see them come to uh, maturity in Christ, to completeness. Now, what does that mean? That's another whole talk. So we'll, we'll say that for another day. But let's just say fully developed, grown up, having all the necessary parts, not an adolescent, well-rounded, not lopsided, grown up in every area of the Christian life, your character, your relationships, your doctrine, etc., etc. See, that's what it means to be a complete, mature disciple. So there in two sentences, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul lays out uh, his own mission statement for ministry of what it means to bear fruit in your life. Now, in another pretty famous passage of Paul's in 2 Timothy 2, 2, he shares with his right-hand man in the last book he wrote before he died uh, some of the most important thoughts that he would share with anybody. And again, a very famous and familiar passage to you, Paul to Timothy. Timothy, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you've heard this from me over and over and over again, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is looking down the corridor of history, and he's not just thinking about Timothy. He's thinking about the folks that Timothy's going to reach, and then the people that those folks are going to reach after that to the third and fourth generation. He's thinking generational. He's thinking multiplication. Maturity and multiplication. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Um, where does this happen? How does this happen? Howard Hendricks, you know, famous Dallas seminary professor for many years, just passed away uh, a few years ago, uh, said this. He says, you know, you can impress from a distance, but you impact up close. That's a good, that's a good statement. I, would, I, would, I might add it and say it this way, too. You educate from a distance, but you disciple up close. Um, you heard the name Ian Bounds 100 years ago. He was a, uh, a pastor who wrote a number of books on prayer. He had been a Civil War chaplain before that. But his, his most famous quote here, um, he said, We are constantly on a stretch, if not a strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church and the gospel. We're always looking for the magic bullet, right? To advance the church, to advance the gospel. But men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. That's quite a statement coming from a Methodist, huh? <laughs> then in his famous book, um, few years ago, uh, Leroy Imes in The Lost Art of Disciple Making opposed this question. Why are fruitful, dedicated, mature disciples so rare? The biggest reason is that all too often we have relied on programs and materials or some other thing to do the job. The ministry is to be carried on by people, not programs. Mature disciples are not mass produced. Then he goes on to say this. You can't drop people into a program and see disciples emerge at the end of a production line, can you? It takes time to make disciples. It takes individual, personal attention. Remember that. Individual, personal attention. It takes patience and understanding to teach them how to get into the Word of God for themselves, how to feed and nourish their souls, and, by the power of the Holy Spirit, how to apply 
the word to their lives, and it takes being an example to them of all of the above. Now, Grant himself has, has said quite often, you know, ministry is more organic than it is organizational. I love that statement. I use it quite often. Ministry is more organic than it is organizational. So what I'd like to share in our remaining time here is a little bit about my own experiences, I guess, uh, and my own philosophy of ministry. I've been involved in discipleship ministries now for about 30 years. I was, I'm a product of the Navigators. I was uh, discipled by four people over, over a long period of time. And most recently, um, my longtime mentor, a guy named Ford Madison, is now in his mid-80s. And uh, I've met with him. I met with him very regularly some years ago. We still get together when we can. We've been meeting for well over 20 years now. Um, and so I'd like to just share a little bit um, I, from my own experience of what, what a real discipling relationship looks like. And I'd like to start with 1 Thess 2.8. And I learned this in the New King James, and I've got it up here in the NASB. Uh, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you've become very dear to us. See, we didn't just blow through town and give you some information and leave and move on. We gave you our life. We shared life with you. We invested in your life and got to know you. So let's talk about what is a life-to-life ministry. It might be a one-on-one relationship, one-on-two or one-on-three or a very small group. But it is life-to-life. You're connecting with people. Um, And I'm going to suggest that if you're meeting with another person and and, and pouring yourself into them and discipling them, there are going to be three aspects uh, to, to this relationship that are that are important. The first is that it is regular. That is to say it's not sporadic or occasional. This is not spot therapy. <laughs> You're meeting with someone hopefully weekly, uh, maybe over lunch or breakfast or some other time where you can build some momentum and time and maybe over several years of investing and meeting with someone, you can have an impact on their lives. So it's regular. And uh, it is highly relational. Second point, it is relational. Uh, all ministry is relational. We're not just running people through a program, are we? Um, so when I meet, uh, when I have met with people and still do and meet with people, I spend at least half the time just relating, just connecting on what are the issues in your life, what's going on, where are you? We just talk about whatever is going on in their life. <clears throat> so it's highly relational. Uh, there's a lot of care uh, involved, uh, but it's also intentional. It's intentional. We're going somewhere. Uh, this is where there's equipping and growth. This is where we bring in content. Now, I've seen relationships that are all relational, and that's good. And I've seen relationships that are all intentional. I think it's both and, relational and intentional. I think that's a real and healthy discipling relationship. I spend about half my time just relating and the other half in content or intentional. Um, you know, are you willing? You've got to be a person who is willing to let someone else speak into your life. You know, never, no one's ever lost an argument with themselves, have they? <laughs> you know, you, you may listen to someone and you go home and you work it all up and you justify whatever you're thinking. But see, we need someone that will challenge our thinking. You know, like, like Proverbs 27:17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So it's regular, it's relational, it's an intentional. And then during the intentional times, I'm going to suggest that... Um, I'm focusing on two broad areas. The first we're going to call felt needs, and the other one we'll call foundational needs. Now, felt needs are reactive, um, and foundational needs are proactive. Felt needs are like when you go to the doctor. What's the first thing he asks you? Where does it hurt? And you tell him. 
So felt needs are issues that the person knows they need help in. They want some help in a certain area. Foundational needs, on the other hand, are areas where we all need to grow. And so the discipler is trying to sort of diagnose where that, where that person is and help them and build them up in the other areas where they need to grow. So that they are well-rounded, fully developed, healthy, right? Growing up in every area so they are complete in Christ. Felt needs and foundational needs. Let's talk about felt needs for a minute. There are lots of felt needs, right? People come to the table with all kinds of baggage, all kinds of issues in their lives, and they need help. Uh, part of the transforming uh, process. In fact, that Romans 12, too, where Paul uh, says, be transformed. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed. Become like Christ in every, every part of your life. Um, and I'm going to suggest that there are many felt needs, but there are three that reoccur over and over and over again with most people. Let's call them character issues, relational issues, and work issues. Um, character issues. Let's talk about that for guys. Uh, what would you say are the, the three biggest issues that we men and guys struggle with and address over and over and over again that we see? Almost all of us struggle with one or all of these. What do you think? What would we say? Pride. There you go. That's one of the top three. Pride about lust and anger. Lust, pride, and anger. Those are probably the big three for men. There are many others, but all of us struggle with some or all of those and others. Uh, so uh, those are issues where we need help, and those are felt needs often. Some years ago, I was discipling a guy named Steve. He was a leader in our church down in College Station. Uh, had been teaching Sunday school for many years. Had a wonderful family. Decided he wanted to be discipled. And so we spent a lot of time together. And after a few weeks, it didn't take long for me to see, whoa, you have a serious anger issue. And it's really manifesting itself in a number of ways, both uh, at work and uh, at church. Uh, and we're going to have to get a handle on that and address that, or it's going to impact all the rest of your life. You know, great guy, very solid in many ways, but this anger issue was going to sink his ship. So we had to spend a little time on that. Um, I had another friend who, Dean, who had a uh, very serious uh, pornography problem uh, that he had acquired <laughs> when he was young. And, you know, those are, those are not easy to walk out of, depending on how serious it was. And, and had a wonderful heart for the Lord, uh, was growing, and, and had a great family and all. But if he didn't get a hold on that, it was going to ruin his life. And in fact, his issues were such that he needed to uh, get some serious counseling over a period of time. But today, he is walking with the Lord, doing well, serving in his church and in ministry. But had he not gotten a hold of that issue 25-plus years ago... It would have, it would have, it would have sunk his ship as well. So character issues, you're huge. Now, now, women, these aren't, the, these aren't the big three for you. Uh, if we were to identify some character issues that women struggle with, uh, and I ran these by my wife to make sure I was <laughs> getting, getting at least on the target a little bit. What were some of the issues that we, that, that you women can struggle with? Not you, but other women that you know. <laughs> uh, I'm being real careful with this. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, how about, say, uh, jealousy, uh, insecurity, uh, a critical spirit towards others? Yeah, sometimes yeah, sometimes maybe women will struggle with some of these and others. We all have issues that we struggle with. So character issues are big uh, felt needs. Uh, how about relational issues? Wow, there's all kinds of relationships we could be talking about here, right? Uh, uh, husband, wife, guy, girl, anything that involves men and women, there's going to be something there, right? <laughs> 
whether married or not or dating or somewhere along the way. Um, family issues, parent-child issues, all kinds of, uh, of issues that people uh, struggle with or need help with or need to grow in, right? Uh, some years back, I, I discipled a guy named Ben when he was a, a junior in college. And a uh, great guy, had a heart for the Lord, went off to seminary eventually, and, and, um, but, but had a very domineering, overbearing father who was very successful in his business. And it, it just had crushed him out as a young man. We had spent a lot of time talking about those issues. And we couldn't just go straight to some of these more foundational needs, although we did, because he had a very huge felt need that he needed some help in. Um, Another guy, Daniel, not my son Daniel, but a Daniel who was a student years ago was uh, dating a girl that he thought was going to be the one he would marry. He was about ready to propose to her. This would be in the mid-90s. <clears throat> and, uh, I mean, it doesn't get any better than this. She was, uh, she was the daughter of a Baptist preacher, right? So she's got to be perfect. <laughs> and she was. She was a great young lady. But there was just some real issues in their relationship. It wasn't healthy. They weren't mature enough, the time wasn't right, and there was more to it than that. And so we spent some time, I said, hey, let's, I had to speak into his life on that one because he was so gung-ho and he was about to buy the ring and make it happen. And I, let's stop and talk about this. So we spent some weeks talking through some of these issues, and he almost broke off his relationship with me over that because <clears throat> I was really getting a little too close, right? But he finally saw the wisdom in what I was saying to him, and over time, they naturally uh, ended up breaking up, which was a, a good and healthy thing for them. Uh, and then some years, he graduated a couple of years later, and he moved on to grad school, and then a couple of years after that, he met, he met just a wonderful young lady, and she was a wonderful fit for him. And, uh, and they, did, they did get married. I, got to, I had the privilege of getting to be in their wedding some years later, and, and now they've been married, they've been married for gosh, at least 16, 17 years and have three children, and it turned out real well. But, you know, those were some very significant issues for him back then. Um, work issues. We're going to spend a lot of time at work, aren't we? Grant's just been sharing with us for a couple of weeks on, on work. Um, and so there, there, there are millions of issues that come out of the work environment. My fit, my boss, my hours, my location, whatever. There's all kinds of issues that we have to address um, related to our vocation, our work. Uh, one guy that I discipled some years ago, Chris Segrist, um, wanted to be a, <laughs> thought he wanted to get out of law school and be, I mean, get out of uh, undergrad and go to law school. I said, why would you want to do that? He was a history teacher. And I said, Chris, you were made, you were made to be in full-time vocational ministry. You're so gifted at this. No, nah, no, nah, I want to do this. And so he did. He came up here and went to Baylor Law School and practiced law for a few years, but just hated it. It just wasn't really, it just wasn't his fit. And, and so he finally made his way back. He took over the A&M Navigator ministry that I ran for a number of years um, and went full-time after that, and he's been doing that ever since, and that was 18 years ago. So, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about work issues and fit issues. So those are, those are the biggest felt needs, character issues, relational issues, work issues. Let's talk about foundational needs. You know, that Philippians 1.25 passage, that's a good one where Paul says, you know, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I'm here to invest in you. I want to help you in your progress in the faith. And there are lots of foundational needs, aren't there, that we need, areas where we all need to grow in. But I'm going to suggest there are five that are essential that need to be growing in all of these five areas. <clears throat> and they're all important. And, and, and the older I get, the more I become convinced that the simplest things are the most profound. 
Uh, and, the first, and this really relates to the first one, too. Foundational needs. Let's talk about the first one, devotional life. Uh, if you just help someone learn to spend regular time in the Word and pray regularly, daily, more than anything else, that'll change their life, won't it? Uh, you know, I, uh, uh, some years ago, worked with, not, not that long ago, 15 years ago, worked with a guy named Wayne. He was a lawyer in my firm, a little bit older than me. Uh, had been a longtime Sunday school teacher and a deacon at, at the Baptist Church there in College Station. And uh, he had never been discipled and wanted to be. So we started spending time together. And I said, well, let's, let's start with uh, issue one. And issue one is tell me about your walk with the Lord. Tell me about the, the time you spend in the Word and in prayer. He said, well, you know, I, I read the Bible when I'm preparing my Sunday school class or when I'm working on some other stuff. I said, no, no, I'm not asking you about that. I'm asking you about your relationship with the Lord. How much time do you spend in the Word yourself? just to commune with God. And what I learned was he knew a lot about God. He just didn't spend very much time with him. <laughs> so his life, when he started having just a regular, consistent, quiet time, uh, and I, you know, off, most of the time I'm going to suggest that in the morning is probably the best time, although if you're not a morning person, do it in the evening. And, and finding a way to work your way through the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation on some kind of a regular basis. And I'm a big believer in reading plans. And the reason I like it, it's like a roadmap. I don't have to think about what I'm going to do every day. I'm reading one Old Testament chapter, and I'm reading one New Testament chapter, and I am working my way systematically through all the scriptures on some kind of a regular basis. And I mix it up every year. Sometimes I'll do it one way, then I'll do it another. Sometimes I'll use ESV, then NASV. I mix it up to keep it fresh. The idea is to be connecting with the Lord, abiding in the vine by spending regular time in the Word and regular time in prayer. And if you just did that... You'll change your life forever. Amen? That is fundamentally abiding in the vine. And that will necessarily produce the fruit that lasts in your life. Uh, number two. Well, let me back up. Let me say one more thing about the devotional life. Um, there are a number of ways that we can take in the Word of God. We can spend time reading it. Can we not? We can study it. We can be in Bible studies. We can listen to other people share the Word. That's three. We can memorize it. And then, what, so if we were to think of that as a hand, this is a pretty old illustration. Uh, say if I read it, if I study it, if I listen to someone else uh, share the word, if I memorize it, that's good. But what's the opposable thumb to all of those? Meditate. See, if I meditate on what I hear, meditate on what I read, meditate on what I memorize, and meditate on what I study, then I am beginning to get a good grip on the word of God. Right? Yeah. Holy character. We've talked about this a little bit. Uh, honestly dealing with sin in your life. This would be the number two foundational need. Honestly dealing with sin in your life. And cultivating the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc., etc., right? All of these are important part of character um, and developing good character. Loving relationships. I've talked about that briefly. Uh, but, but good relationships with your spouse if you're married, with your family. Uh, with with your a local church and even with outsiders, you know, uh, how are you going to reach others if you don't have any if you don't have any relationships with uh, with unbelievers? And men, let me just say in particular, we do a terrible job at having a few close friends that we connect with. Women do much much better at this than we do, right? We think that John we follow the John Wayne model because we're tough Western guys, right? You got to be able to ride off into the sunset by yourself. Now I'm going to suggest now that's. That, <laughs> That's, that's not the right model. The right model is Jonathan and David. 
Now, these guys were tough warriors who, when they parted for the last time, blubbered and cried over each other because their friendship was so close. See, that's, that's real manhood right there. And let me just suggest that these guys are tougher than John Wayne because John Wayne used a rifle, but they used swords hand-to-hand combat, right? So they're every bit as tough and probably tougher than John Wayne. And I, and I love John Wayne, but <laughs> I don't believe in that uh, Lone Ranger model. Lone Rangers get picked off. Guys, we especially need a few men in our lives. Essential doctrine. Let's talk about that one briefly. Um, now, you're going to get most of that in, uh, in uh, large group settings, in small group Bible study settings, but in one-to-one relationships or in life-to-life relationships, uh, you may need to address some of these issues. I remember some years ago working with a, a young guy who came from a very good family, a wonderful young man, uh, but he came from a Catholic, a Catholic background, so he had some uh, work salvation issues there that kind of affected his thinking, and we had to spend some time addressing that. It actually took him a number of years to finally struggle through some of that um but but uh, there will be occasions when you see people who don't really say have a real understanding of grace no 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 you don't have to earn your favor before god he loves you right now and completely accepts you for who you are <laughs> uh so doctrine is huge isn't it having correct doctrine on all at least the, the the basic areas of the christian life now we can argue about whether we're pre-post or amillennial even though this church is pre-millennial and we can defend it very thoroughly. But you know what? To some degree, those are secondary issues. But there are essential issues of doctrine that everybody needs to be sound on, aren't there? This is the Word of God, the inerrant, true, and accurate Word of God. <laughs> Jesus did live, He did die, and He was raised from the dead. And if you don't believe that, you are not a believer, right? He's not just a good teacher and a good guy. He is the King, and He is the Savior. And they're essential to the doctrine in doctrine that we all need to be solid on. And then finally, personal ministry. I believe that everyone is called to some kind of ministry. So helping people find out their gifts, learning to serve, stewardship, giving of money, and then discipling and investing in others, spiritual multiplication. These are all a normal part of the Christian life that we want to be building into. Just a couple of years ago, I was meeting with a guy named Tim, a grad student here. First time I ever got to disciple someone named Timothy. That was, that was kind of fun. <laughs> and great guy from a really uh, good family and, and was here working on a graduate degree at Baylor. And I, he was in a, a Bible study that we had for young couples. And I said, hey, Tim, you ever, you ever been discipled or met with anybody uh, man-to-man? And he said, no. I said, would you like to do that? He said, yeah. So we, uh, we spent the next year or so meeting together, and, and uh, he had a real heart for ministry. I said, well, you have a vision for what you want to do in ministry? He says, not at all. And I said, I believe I can help you with that. <laughs> so we spent some time and walked through some of these very things we're talking about this morning. And he was pumped. He got really into it. I have to say, he was one of the best guys I ever, ever worked with uh, addressing some of these issues. He graduated and moved away and seems to be doing real well down in Houston at a church down there. So... Uh, many other foundational needs that we could cover, but I'm going to suggest that these five are essential to your growth, to my growth, uh, my, my devotional life, my, my regular connecting with the Lord through the word and prayer, my character, the quality of my relationships, uh, solid doctrine, and personal ministry. These five need to be built into every believer. And let me then close then with this. Um, yeah, here we go. Um, a, a simple, sometimes we make this too complex. We make discipleship too complicated. It's really not that complicated. 
Uh, Ford Madison shared with me years ago his very straightforward definition of discipleship. It's really just one person coming alongside another and helping them take the next step or steps along the path to Christ's likeness. So if we were to look at this little illustration here, and, and he came up with this, not me. I just kind of made it look cool with the grapevine behind it, kind of whatever. <laughs> so if, uh, if you're this side of the cross and you're a believer, hopefully you're generally moving uphill. Now, that's the goal. Now, really, I should have put a wave on there because it kind of does this, doesn't it, <laughs> up and down at times. Um, but what is discipleship? It's really just one older believer coming alongside a younger believer and helping them take the next step or steps along the path to becoming like Jesus in every part of your life. See, Luke 6.40 says that uh, a disciple, when fully trained, will be like his teacher. Jesus said that. Paul said in Romans 8.29, and let me summarize, uh, or paraphrase rather, is that it's God's destiny for us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. So if the goal up here on the right is Christ's likeness, then hopefully we are gradually on an uphill uh, slope of becoming that Christ-like, and therefore becoming mature or complete in Christ. Now, if you're the other side of the cross, I think we could suggest and say that uh, uh, really evangelism is just coming al- a believer coming alongside an unbeliever and helping them take the next step or steps along the path towards faith in Christ. But once you become a believer, it's helping take the next step or steps towards Christ-likeness, along the path uh, to Christ-likeness. And so I have tried to have through the years, and I, I like this little model, the Paul Barnabas Timothy model. Have you heard that one? I've always wanted a Paul in my life, someone a little bit ahead of me that's investing in me, a Barnabas, someone who's about my age, uh, spiritually speaking, that we can share life with, and a Timothy, somebody that I'm investing in. See, I always want relationships like that uh, in my life. And as, as Lauren Sandy used to say, and he was the president, longtime president of Navigators years ago, he said, you know, you, you, you take who God gives you, you start where they are, and you see how far you can go. Because I don't control how long I get to spend with somebody. I'd like for it to be several years at least. Um, and, you know, some of you may be saying, I'm a little too old for this. It's, it's just too late. I missed out. Nah. Nah, you're never too late. You're never too old to get into this. A couple of, let me give you one good last illustration. My, uh, my college roommate a couple of years ago, called me up. He lives in San Antonio, and he says, Hey, you know, you've been doing this for a little while. I'd really like to be more engaged in the discipling ministry. Would you be willing to meet with me? And I said, Sure. I mean, I live in Waco. You live in San Antonio. But why don't we do this by phone? Technology now, you can, right, we can get on our iPhones together, and we can talk. And so we did that for two years, every Thursday night for a good solid hour, going through all the same stuff that I've gone through with other folks. And he is today, and he is my age, he's 57 years old, and he is today uh, investing in other men in his church. He's involved in a discipleship ministry that he and the pastor have just started just in the last year down at his church down in San Antonio. And he is, he is so excited about it. In fact, he's thinking of retiring early to be able to do that a, a whole lot more. And I thought, wow, this is amazing what God is doing, and God is doing this. Because, you see, by this our Father is glorified, that we bear much fruit, and so show that we are his disciples. Amen? Let's pray.